Hello. My name is Lien Fouad and I'm a researcher here with a Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. Welcome to our event on neglected crises with a focus on Myanmar, Syria and Somalia. I'm joined today by my colleague Dustin Barter who will be co-moderating this event and we're also joined by an excellent panel who I will be introducing to you in just a few moments. This month commemorates two significant anniversaries. The 1st of February marks three years since the military coup in Myanmar, which displaced millions of people and triggered a people's revolution. The 6th of February, just two days ago, marked a year since the deadly earthquakes that hit northern Syria and southern Turkey, and which have had a disproportionately um, devastating impact on a um, population battered by over a decade of conflict. There are 18 million people in need of humanitarian assistance in Myanmar, 16 million in Syria, and over 8 million people in Somalia. These are not just numbers, these are people in need, and needs are arising every day, and yet these crises have been effectively deprioritized or have even disappeared from public and international attention. So what are the implications of this continued neglect? And how can the situations in Myanmar, Syria, and Somalia teach us about humanitarian engagement in other neglected crises like Ethiopia and Sudan? And how can we shift the international response from inertia to action? And to answer these questions, we have an excellent panel of experts. Firstly, to my right, I have Mazen Gariba, who's a policy researcher at the Conflict and Civicness Research Group at LSE. And then to his right is Dr. Surer Mohammed, who is a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. And finally, I'd like to introduce Min Tent Bo, who is an independent analyst on human rights and democracy in Myanmar. A very warm welcome to you all. And just Yes, definitely they deserve a stop. And just before I hand uh, over to Dustin to start the discussion, just some housekeeping for Q&A. So we have a large online audience and as well as here in the room in ODI. So after we've heard from our three panelists, we'd like to hear from you, thoughts, questions and reflections. So if you're online, please post your questions at the Q&A box at the bottom. And if you're here, we have a roaming mic. Um, that we'll be um, giving out at the end. Um, and we also encourage you to tweet using the hashtag neglected crises and potentially, if you can, using HPG's handle at HPG underscore ODR. And without further ado, I will hand over to Dustin to um, frame this discussion. Dustin, over to you. Sure, thanks everyone for coming. I'll keep it brief so we can uh, focus on the excellent panelists. But just two short uh, vignettes, maybe. Uh, so I was chatting with a friend from Australian NGO last week. And so when we're talking about neglected crises, there's obviously political, public, economic, many different dimensions to that. And they talked about the Ukraine fundraiser that their NGO uh, did in Australia, and they raised $20 million, which is like quite a substantial amount of money. And in April last year, conflict kicked off in Sudan, and they did a similarly big organization-wide funding appeal, 
and raised $80,000. So I did the maths, I needed a calculator, and it's about 250 times the public funding, public donations for Ukraine than what you got for Saddam. Not to mention that governments, through bilateral aid, are focusing much more on channeling money towards Ukraine rather than Sudan, Myanmar, Somalia, Syria, and countless other crises. So when you talk about neglect, it's not just a government level aspect, but also public consciousness. What role does the media play? There's a lot of intersecting uh, factors. So just to bear that in mind. And then this is a severe topic that we are talking about, and there's a lot of doom and gloom that is going to be presented, but also elements of hope within that. And yeah, I think just a brief quote from a Myanmar poet to, to get things started, who was killed by the military following the coup, he said, they shoot at our heads, but revolution lives in the heart. So I will hand this over to, to Min to elaborate further. Um, I'm Min, uh, independent analyst based in London, working on human rights and democracy in Myanmar. And I've been working for several INGOs and development missions for the last 18 years. And now I'm currently based here and then working mostly on Myanmar. Mohammed. I'm the Harry F. Guggenheim Research Fellow at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and I look at urban post-conflict reconstruction in Mogadishu, Somalia. I'm Mazen Gariba. I'm from Syria. I work at the Conflict and Research uh, Group um, in, at LSE, focusing mainly on Syria, but we also work on, on Yemen and, and South Sudan. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also a research fellow at the Middle East Center at the LSE, and I'm part of a diaspora-based, Syrian diaspora-based group called the Syrian British Consortium. So um, when we talk about international aid and uh, international organizations, um, I would like to start, you know, to uh, all of you just share, sharing a bit about Myanmar as well. Um, to begin with, UN is part of the problem, you know, because in Myanmar, um, UN you know, has been doing it for, for many, many years. For example, you know, just using, uh, they think that they have this mentality that they think that they can walk with, uh, with the military that things can solve, you know. Which, is, which they fail um, miserably in Rohingya crisis. They prioritize economic development uh, aid over human rights issue. For example, in 2017, when the genocide happened, uh, I mean, before genocide broke out, right, it was just UN agencies are prioritizing, focusing more on, uh, like, for example, the economic development, which is, I mean, which is not surprising. Um, so uh, a short story, Myanmar went through this resistance movement. I mean, um, the political crisis turmoil since 1948 after the independence from the British. Uh, but so over all these 60 years, that's longest, I would say the second longest civil war after um, Colombia, so this country is back and forth with the anti-military, you know, taking over coup d'etat. Uh, I mean, also, and then when 88 comes, it's the people resistant revolution, and which is basically uh, died out three years later, the military took over again. However, in 2011, uh, country turned to change to a, a civilian, like quasi-civilian uh, transformation. Since then, at the time, what uh, would, I mean, what was supposed to happen for me and my other activist friends, you know, we, what was, what we, we hoped at the time was to uh, address a serious um, like a human rights issue, the, 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 the problem in the grounds. But instead, no, it is completely whitewashed. International communities came in, they basically starting with the whole this neoliberal idea, ideology that you know, the economics change will, uh, uh, how can I say, will help lift the country from all the miseries. Uh, yeah, I criticized a lot at the time, but however, I also uh, wanted to, to, to part in a part of the change process. So I worked in the election process and peace process. 
And then just because of that, uh, you realize more and more, you know, like all these like uh, the aid money that go into millions, millions of for money are basically mostly by the international uh, staff, you know, and also like, even for some educated Burmese as well, you know, just like double consultancies, which completely neglect anything happening on the ground. But in a way, also that people basically kind of believe that um, economy, you know, like a uh, change. You can see a lot of like American companies, you know, like everyone came in, you know. But at the end, just because of the, the root problems, they didn't clear it out. I didn't. Uh, so at the end, it basically uh, back to square one. So uh, that's uh, a part of my, my my first discussion, and I'll discuss further. If you want to continue on. Oh, okay. Um, so and after that, um, so so for example, right now um, the, with the coup that we've been calling out uh, and been uh, basically uh, telling, encouraging the UN agency, international agency to engage more with the local, uh, like uh, you know, like organizations, you know, their like let's say ethnic uh, armed group organizations, local CSO. Um, so far, um, I mean, it's happening on the ground, but very few. Recently, uh, on I think it was a December 18 or 2020th, UNFPA boss in Myanmar bragged about that he was in Naypyidaw, very happy that that he is meeting with the, the military, you know, like uh, people to talk about uh, SRHR. I'm just like, this is like, you know, like outrageous, right? Because these are the same people, the same uh, military people who basically committed, you know, sexual violence and crimes against women, you know. Uh, me as a, as a part of an SRHR activist, I was actually very, very angry when I, when I saw that. It's like, it's, I mean, ignorant, arrogant, I would say. And when people start calling out um, the person and I don't know what happened after that. So for example, this kind of thing that you know, like that you can, they still believe that you can, you know, change, you work with them and then it can change. And the next question is, um, so uh, it's, uh, is it really like the, the, really, it's actually working right now in Myanmar? And you know, and also don't forget that the military can also weaponize, you know, like aid as well. That's what they've been doing the whole time. So, like, how are you going to 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 deal with that? How are you going to, you know, like uh, find find uh, solutions? Of course, it's it's a million dollar question. You know, it's not like solution straight away. The same thing happened with the Rohingya crisis, because like when I was um, writing a piece about um, international uh, organizations involvement in Myanmar, you know, it's um, criticizing them. Um, people, some people ask me. Uh, so what is the solution to the, the Rohingya gen genocide? I'm like, it's a million dollar question, so no one can answer. But definitely, there there should be engaged more than you know, and then than that. So that's uh, that's what I would just say for now. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Thanks, Min. And I think I'll hand over to Lynn. So we've witnessed similar dynamics of revolt, resistance, but also weaponization of aid in Syria. Um, Thirteen years since the conflict started, there's a huge rise of humanitarian needs, but also at the same time, a lack of political solution. So an international support at the start of the conflict was quite strong, but then um, Syria has been deprioritized at the global stage now. So Mazen, what can you tell us about this neglect and this continued neglect in Syria? Thank you, thank you, Lee, and thank you so much. And as you said, this, this week marks the first anniversary of the Syria-Turkey earthquake. And I believe my intervention actually will be focusing on that, what happened last year, because I believe it's, it, it offers a very a painful lesson about the devastating consequences of neglected crisis. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of context. Last year, um, on, on, on February 6th, um, a series of earthquakes had southern, uh, southern Turkey and northwest Syria, um, resulting uh, claimed the lives of 50,000 people in Turkey and 6,000 people uh, inside Syria. 
most of these casualties were concentrated in northwest Syria. Northwest Syria is an area, is a region that has been outside of the regime control for over decades. Mm -hmm. It's an area that has been witnessing um, almost daily area bombardments from the Syrian uh, army and uh, the, the, the Russian armed forces as well, including the use of chemical weapons in, at several occasions, including, of course, what we call the Khan Sheikhoun massacre when the Syrian regime used chemical weapons against civilians at a large scale. Um, so when the earthquake happened, for almost a week after the earthquake, which if you, any expert on humanitarian crisis would tell you that the full 48 hours after any earthquake are the most critical hours to save people. But what happened in Syria that for over a week, no international aid reached Northwest Syria. Nothing reached Northwest Syria. So the local response to the, north, to the earthquake, to the devastating earthquake, in an area that already been devastated by the war, was carried out by local NGOs, understaffed, underfunded local NGOs, primarily the Syrian heroes, what they call the Syrian civil defense, the White Helmets, mm -hmm. are the ones who actually uh, started rescue operations. Um, despite them as well losing loved ones and homes, but they were able to save thousands of people from under the rebel. But of course, talking to any of them, they will tell you that if some assistance reached them uh, within 48 hours, they could have saved more lives. So what really happened was international rescue teams were, as you see on the news, were deployed. Thankfully, they were deployed to Turkey. And of course, here we have to say that Turkey was, was, was overwhelmed because it was the epicenter of the, of the earthquake and the Turkish authorities they were also overwhelmed by, by, by the massive consequences of the earthquake. So thankfully, a lot of countries sent international rescue teams to southern Turkey. However, no uh, uh, rescue team actually were allowed to cross Syria. And I met several members of these international rescue teams and they told me that they were begging their governments just to cross five kilometers into Syria because they can see it. And they were not allowed to cross the borders for geopolitical considerations. Uh, the UN also waited for almost a week to send uh, international to send any sort of meaningful aid uh, to Syria. Of course, some of the colleagues at the UN would say, well, that's not true. We sent something 72 hours after the earthquake. And to that, we say that's not true because the, the, the convoy that was sent 72 hours was actually already <laughs> Uh, uh, scheduled and there's the convoy is already waiting at the borders four days before the earthquake and actually the convoy had non-food items and hygiene kits so local NGOs couldn't do it to do anything with it because they were asking for 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 heavy machineries for 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 um, uh, uh, rescue dogs and for these uh, sort of things but nothing of that sort arrived why because the UN despite having a mandate and despite having something here called the cross-border aid resolution decided to wait for the consent of the Syrian regime to use a cross-border that's not controlled by the Syrian regime to send international aid to an area that's not controlled by the Syrian regime. And of course, the Syrian regime, who's already been bombing this area for 12 years, decided to wait to absolutely last minute to give that consent. Even though that many legal experts and many INGOs, including Amnesty International, actually released legal arguments saying that this is a violation of the UN Charter uh, because there is international humanitarian law that uh, sending um, impartial life-saving humanitarian assistance to an affected population to allevi alleviate the suffering of affected uh, population in hard to reach areas does not amount to interference in the sovereignty of the state. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the UN mandate to deploy rapid response plan, but this didn't, this hasn't happened at all. 
So many lives were lost unnecessarily because of the politicization of the, of the AIDS, because of the UN lack of willingness actually to act upon its mandate and, and uh, its charter to save uh, uh, Syrians. Um, of course, here there are many, many lessons to be learned from, 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 from what happened in the earthquake. And I believe I will focus on four of these lessons. Firstly, it's, it shows, and the, the entire Syrian conflict, to be honest, it shows the, uh, the shortcomings of the, the, the international humanitarian uh, 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 framework that doesn't really take into consideration the realities of civil wars and internal conflict and intrastate conflict. Because this, as you know, the system, the humanitarian system, was built to deal with, 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 with interstate violence, uh, rights like uh, 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 Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. But it doesn't really equipped to deal with the nuances uh, 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 of the of, of civil wars and internal conflicts. So we need substantive review and substantive changes to the international assistance framework. And we need to understand that each country is specific and we need to have certain policies in order and flexibility in order to deal with that, um, uh, with these sort of crisis. The second lesson I would say is that the importance and centrality of local NGOs and local CSOs in, 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 in addressing compound crises. And uh, uh, which means that the necessity of enforcing the localization of aid agenda, which means that we need to, to, we need to support local NGOs and to support local CSOs in order to be able to respond when such crisis happens. And by localization of aid, because some donors interpret localization of aid as throwing money at local NGOs without doing anything. And that's not what we mean by localization of aid. When you talk about localization of aid, we mean do not treat local NGOs and civic actors as passive recipients of funds, mm -hmm. treat them as actual partners, that they are the ones who know the area, they know what to do, and they need to be on the table, they need to, 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 to design the intervention, to design the needs assessment, they're the ones who actually know what's happening and what should happen. So they need to be partners, which also some humanitarian organization called the Accountability to Affected Population, AAP, which means that affected population should be, we should be accountable to them by bringing them to the decision-making process and also by, by preserving their human rights and human dignity. So that's something that I think Syria painfully uh, uh, illustrates that the importance of, of, of enforcing such policies. The third lesson I would say is the role of the diaspora. So because of this, because of the abandonment that happened during the first week uh, of the earthquake, something magnificent happened in the Syrian diaspora. All of a sudden, all of the people I know, Syrians outside of Syria, they came together. They organized fundraising campaigns. By the way, the fundraising campaigns that the Syrian diaspora organized exceeded the money that the UN sent and exceeded the money that the UK uh, government, by, by the way, sent. Uh, they helped with crowdsourcing because of... The thing is that most of the humanitarian organizations who respond to the humanitarian crisis here are located in the southern Turkey, and they themselves were, were, were destroyed and abandoned and, and, and uh, killed and, 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 and disappeared. So a lot of NGOs outside of Syria actually tried to take their place in order for a week, in order for them to be able to stand again and to, to continue their, their, their operations. Um, and I think, I think that also shows us that including the diaspora and working with the diaspora is also something very important. 
the, four, the final lesson, I'm sorry if I'm taking so much time. Uh, the final lesson I would say is uh, the main, I think the root cause of, of, of a lot of neglected crisis and mainly Syria is branding a politically driven crisis merely as a humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. This is not just a humanitarian crisis. A humanitarian crisis happened because of a political crisis that's happening in Syria. It's a symptom, it's not the root cause, but the international system, they deal with the symptom and they deal with it. And now if you watch the media, most of think tanks, they will say, well, Syria is a humanitarian crisis. It's not a humanitarian crisis. It's a political crisis. It's a political crisis that happened, that's been happening for, for, for over a decade. But rendering it as a humanitarian crisis means that there is no actual investment in the political process and political negotiation and a political solution in Syria. So it's now a frozen conflict. Mm -hmm. And I believe looking at Gaza, we can also all learn that rendering a political crisis as, as, as a humanitarian crisis or as a frozen crisis will eventually, it will blow up in all of our faces mm -hmm. and it will have far reaching consequences uh, that no one can deal with. And I believe this is exactly what's happening in Syria. Mm -hmm. And I believe that um, if the international community didn't actually start investing in the political process and political solutions, not just in Syria, but all of our crises, uh, nothing would really happen. And the Gaza scenario would just, we will witness it all over the, all over the world over and over again. Thank you. Thank you, Mazen. Excellent intervention on localization, accountability to affect population and political crisis. I'll hand over to Dustin. Cool. So next up we have uh, Sarah, who we kind of love this, um, the synergies between the different uh, contexts and some of the overlapping dynamics as well, where we talk about uh, the earthquake. Also in Myanmar, we had the cyclone Mocha last year that probably nobody's heard of because it just kind of went under the radar, the military cut off all access. And who really knows the extent of the damage um, and so there's common issues around political crises, humanitarian crises, but also mutual aid, which maybe we'll have Min talk about uh, later. But Sarah does a lot of amazing work around dynamics around urbanization and the importance of land and the centrality of land governance in relation to broader political settlements, but also drivers of conflict. And so really wanted to bring in Sarah's perspectives on, the, on these issues of kind of talking about, you know, this transition periods as well from humanitarian crises to, you know, longer term uh, resilience and governance dynamics as well. So I'll hand over to Sarah. Thank Thanks. you so much. And thank you so much uh, to ODI for having me on this platform. Um, I've learned already so much from my co-panelists. And honestly, I feel like if we just had a discussion about the throw lines and thematic throw lines, we could just have a conversation about that. And my entire intervention could just be, that's interesting and we need to talk more about that and that's something else. So I will restrain myself. Um, I'd like to start by saying, um, I want to start by thinking a little bit about the question of inertia itself and thinking a little bit about what it is that we are attempting to overcome. What does it mean to have inertia in this international system? And what does it tell us about the international uh, pathways that we operate within? In the context of Somalia, inertia looks like protracted crisis. And in, by protracted, I mean complex and political social challenges that develop over the scale of decades as opposed to years or months. Protracted crises can engender a kind of political dynamic of their own, a political economy and infrastructure which supports the continuation of political, economic, or even environmental crises. And this is where I see my first 
reaching of the hand because we have the question of cyclical environmental uh, crisis in the context of particularly southern Somalia, which is definitely an environmental crisis. You have drought, flood, famine, right? But it's also a political crisis, a series of inabilities to be able to access um, governance structures, a series of inability to be able to think ahead towards the next crisis. And then so we have these cyclical funding drives year after year, which creates and drives itself a great deal of donor fatigue. So that's my first reach over, but I'm going to restrain myself. Political violence, when it's played out over the long durée, has an effect on livelihoods, economic infrastructures, and possibilities of developing mechanisms of governance that meet the needs of communities. And it's true that the entrenchment of crisis also results in increasing complexity, right? So we have a rising number of communities, political groups, armed groups that become involved and implicated in the rising and spiraling challenge. There also might be questions about internationalization and external intervention. So this brings us to the question, in the context of protracted conflict, what is protracted? What is it specifically that actually survives? Put another way, what changes and what stays the same? So in the context of Somalia, we may look to Somalia for answers here. Somalia has been associated with a series of interlocking challenges from the collapse of the Somali state from 1991 onwards. And these interlocking challenges include the problem of non-state political violence, including warlords and contemporarily al-Shabaab, but then also challenges about what it looks like to reconstruct a state from the ground up, right? The increasing intensity of environmental crises that we've already alluded to. In the context of Somalia, two authors, Ken Menkhouse and Paul D. Williams, point to what they call durable disorder as a reason for protracted <laughs> conflict. And they argue that protractedness emerges not necessarily from the, the longevity of particular dynamics, but the endurance of a particular kind of political economy of which humanitarian aid is a part, right? And support for peace operations, which they're particularly interested in, are a part. That doesn't mean that everything stays the same over the course of a decade, but they specifically highlight the transition from, for example, powerful armed groups, which engage in predatory activities like land grabbing and looting of food aid, into semi-legitimate political and private sector actors. I think that they call or term the move from warlord to landlord. At the same time, the endurance of these particular kinds of logics and political economy create what they call this dynamic of durable disorder, which implicates international humanitarian aid in the pro prolongation of protracted conflict, right? And so it's influenced by the overarching political economy. And so where in context where the endurance of intervention and the unshifting intervention, particular kinds of modalities of intervention can be relied upon, they argue that aid, uh, procurement, service delivery contracts become principal locations of contestation and political intervention, right? And so this is one face of the particular kind of inertia that we're attempting to think about. So in my research, I look at something a bit more downstream. I'm thinking about how challenges with uh, state governance have significant impacts on how land is used, owned, and operated in the context of Mogadishu, Somalia. So contrary to our narratives of endemic failure and crisis, Mogadishu has actually seen a striking building boom over the course of the past decade growing rapidly, urbanizing at some rates, some estimates, a rate of 4% per year. That's actually an undercount if you ask urban planners within the city. But that's what we have on the World Bank, so we'll go with that statistic. 
Mogadishu's sky, the skyline of Mogadishu is changing rapidly, and this combined transformation has been really striking and a source of particular hope for interveners who say, look, this is where all this intervention has gone. Residential houses renovated, hotels, shopping malls and restaurants open, communication and service infrastructures transformed, but unevenly assembled throughout cities. This is where as well, I'm gonna reach my hand out again and think a little bit about diaspora intervention and finance. That's a very significant amount of what, what's going on here because Somalia is a very high risk place for investment unless you're within the context of Somalia itself. However, underneath this recovery lies a fractious series of contests over the ownership, management and future of urban land. Land itself was a critical resource during the course of the wartime political economy as armed groups appropriated and carved up public and private uh, property within the city. In some estimates, some 80% of cases in front of courts have to do with land and property disputes. Simultaneously, communities of the urban displaced, and these are displaced communities em emerging from in climactic shocks in other regions or political instability, find refuge in the city, creating communities of effectively people with very little security of tenure who themselves can be not be relied on uh, who cannot rely upon the future of their of their locations um, this leads to several interlocking challenges which i'll consider very quickly the first is that of course questions of land governance in somalia are characterized by unclear and overlapping systems of governance and a lack of state capacity um, and this creates a distinctly challenging system to navigate for state and citizens alike, as security of tenure can be validated and nullified by different parties, right? Second, you have the rapid urbanization of Somali cities significantly outstripping the capacity of urban and regional governments to administer them. And with this comes with particular kinds of urban and regional administration challenges and a strain on already limited governance resources. Third, you have the long-standing land disputes and contemporary land conflicts, which continue to be a trigger for instability and even violence in Somalia. And this is where conversations around what is politically feasible become really important because politically land was never a part of the peace building process, particularly because of its hot, the fact that it is such a hot button topic. And so there's a question around this tension between peace and justice that exists underlaying this. And there becomes a question around what is it uh, worth, basically, in order to maintain a particularly kind of tenuous peace. Fourth, we have the question of the lack of enforcement and judicial capacity. And I'm going to move to fifth, which is the land grabbing and increasing commodification of land and the use of land to consolidate political alliances and patronage, which definitely emerges downstream from the kind of humanitarian issues that we discussed before. So in this context, um, and I, I think I'm nearing my ending point here, what can an analysis of Somalia cities really tell us about this question of uh, overcoming inertia? The first is that protracted conflict in and of itself does not necessarily mean stasis. There's an incredible amount of flexibility, fluidity, transformation, and change occurring within particularly the context of Mogadishu, but that this in itself is underwritten by significant thematic challenges that continue to call back to histories of, of, of violence, of grievance, of challenge, um, and that without an addressing of those particular central issues, we're going to continue to have these kind of depoliticized technocratic interventions that, that lead us in the place that we, that we continually lack. 
Um, there's also important questions that I would love to chat with you about, about knowledge accumulation and engagement and what it means to actually have, as you were talking about questions around what localization really means. Um, this is something in the academic space we often see where in organizations will go into the context of Somalia and do very important knowledge accumulation for their project and then leave with that information, um, you know? Yeah. So we have this kind of uh, poverty of, of data that cannot be moved from one place to another. And so then that gives us really important questions around who owns information, who owns data. Um, and so I think that's something that we've all be able to discuss. Um, I'll leave it there for now. I know, I think we have a lot to discuss together, um, but thank you so much for that time. Thanks, Saref, for that brilliant analysis is very, very coherent and bringing a lot of strands together. I think also emphasized when we talk of overcoming inertia, it's not just at this global level or systems level, but also kind of comes down to a country level where humanitarian systems have been operating for many, many years or decades in certain instances. And there is an inertia in the way a humanitarian system operates and fails to engage with these broader political dynamics, drivers of conflict, but also drivers of peace. Um, so we'll nearly wrap it up. I just wanted to bring some of these ideas together as well around uh, some of the mutual aid aspects and to bring potentially a positive uh, kind of angle in some of the, the themes we're talking about and hand back to Min to talk a bit about humanitarian resistance and mutual aid in Myanmar when we're talking about what might the future look like. And Myanmar has been a very uh, fraught context with the military asserting very violent control and access restrictions uh, for, for decades, essentially. And you've seen in recent years since the military coup, this uprising of humanitarian uh, resistance and mutual aid, uh, which has been really quite pioneering. So I was hoping me and you might be able to talk a bit more about that. Thank you. Um, before I start, um, so thank you for, um, we have shared a lot of things, for example, like this uh, diaspora, but what could happen also Burmese living around the world, also diaspora also started yeah. fundraising. That's why we're still doing it as well. But that also comes with what I'm about to say right now. You know, for example, like so um, egg neutrality, right? So what is egg neutrality? You know, but like, is it really like even like principle dated until now? Because you know, like do you do you really have to to like back to my previous argument? Walk with the. Um, the military, you know, SAC, for example, it is that is the the way. Um, I, I don't think so because, and also another thing is like uh, they're also having like a problem, like in like a, does it work in in Myanmar? Uh, it I don't think it works, you know, because for example, um, since for example in two thousand eight, uh, Cyclone Nagis, uh, sure you aware of that? At the time, there was also like try to to help uh, international um, AHF, but at the time, the military uh, generals they blocked the aid. So finally, uh, got delivered um, like some time later, you know. But uh, the the, the aid impact it is like so. What are we actually? How can I say we're thinking about it, doing about it, right? Regarding the aid neutrality, so we have to question. I mean, especially international NGOs and also like uh, the UN itself. Mm -hmm. Question type of question itself because in Myanmar, uh, regarding this uh, the, the the social movement and then the fundraising project and all. Uh, so including the UN, a big on INGOs, also the number two I would like to mention is INGOization of uh, resistance. For example, like unnecessary funding frameworks, outdated uh, reporting mechanism, you know, like, mm -hmm. so for example, um, 
even with diaspora, we try to, to, to contribute, send money for development, for IDPs, for example, you know, people suffering at the border. But there needs to be a strong mechanism, a reporting mechanism that you shouldn't give to the, uh, the armed struggle. You know? So of course, nobody wants to, 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 to do an armed struggle, you know? but there has to be all these like, unnecessary frameworks. For example, I have a few friends, you know, um, CSO and uh, INGO small group, you know, trying to help um, fundraising and then try to get funding from um, international organizations. Uh, there's uh, regarding to, uh, I mean, just not even the eight, it's about the media you know, reform. Mm -hmm. But none of the organization, international INGO, did, they didn't want to, to give them the money because they can't provide any of this, uh, for example, the reporting mechanism. So these things should address properly and then change it. And, and, not, and the next thing is that it's a structural problem and not easily fixed, I would say. For example, uh, UN system is not equipped to uh, deal with non-state actors, like many other governments, which Mazan mentioned it already. So what do we do? And UNSC is so fundamentally flawed. China, Russia, you know, as you know, you called it. So we also have to question this whole eight industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. Everywhere we go, we've seen in developed countries, we've seen in Africa, we've seen in Asia, you know, so as someone who's born from developed countries, you know, I'm just like, I do, we should see a question. And last, like when you mentioned it, when they went into the country, mm -hmm. they trained all the trainings, many, many years training provided to, to, uh, uh, to local INGO, local CSO. Mm -hmm. And after the organization left, the project ended, the training left. And the source materials were basically taken, mm. not access to, to, to the people. Yeah. And another one coming again, similar project, started all over again. Mm. So what, what, are, what, is, what, what are we doing about that? Right? Mm. And uh, okay, humanitarian resistance. I believe uh, a few of the, um, the solutions, you know, justice and humanitarian uh, um, need must go hand in hand. You, know, you can't just basically give them aid and, by, and also like, okay, we'll talk about it later, which is the same approach. And like, first you need to get aid and then we'll talk about when the countries happen. You know? And uh, so, yeah, and also if possible, I know it, it's a long way, if possible moving away from um, the UN framework, you know, UN working style and support, supporting localization, like you mentioned before. Yes, funding local grassroots levels, you know, because there, there are some INGOs, even in the UK, that they are making sure that the, 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 the grassroots levels receive the funds they have from big international INGO and donors. You know? They don't have this complicated reporting mechanism. They are actually helping a lot of people out here. So I'm not gonna mention the name of the INGO, the, 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 the firm, but they are doing it. So these kind of things need to, to be addressed and also work together with this kind of organization. And uh, also not the last thing for me, for, I want to add is that working with non-state actors, for example, uh, civil society organization uh, like uh, grassroots communities and uh, NUG, for example, you know, this uh, exile government of Myanmar. You know? So that's what I would do to more about. Basically, uh, it's uh, just as humanitarian aid has come hand in hand, not about aid only. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Win. So I think excellent tying together of these ideas around justice, civil society agency, also around you know investing in localization and local actors when the times are relatively good. It, the, the coup was unpredicted, and then all of a sudden now you have local actors leading the response across the entire country. Um, so I think I'll hand over to Lane, and then we will do Q&A. We do Q&A now. Okay. Mm. From the room first, and then we'll take right. online questions. Excellent. So we are now going to open the floor to, to Q&A. Um, please put your hand up. The microphone will come over to you, and we're going to alternate between one question from the room and then one from online because 
in the past, online has felt a bit neglected, so we want to have an equi equitable uh, process here. So, and please um, try away with any questions. Thanks. I stand up. Uh, cheers. Thanks for the uh, discussion. Very insightful. I have a question for um, Dr. Mohammed uh, on land tenure. You, you briefly touched on the, uh, let's say, the tensions between or land tenure as a driver of conflict in relation to state governance. And I was wondering that, for example, you, 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 you're talking about uh, Somalia, but even if we look at the Niger Delta, there's a, one could argue that the main driver of conflict is actually tensions between locally respected norms of land, uh, land ownership and, and national law imposed on it and frictions uh, created between uh, agro-pastorals and, and, and local farmers. And given that this land cost from the UN side is very increasingly commodified and we're going to talk we, we we will bring in climate smart agriculture and this is going to solve all the problems i was just wondering how do we put in this issue of uh, divergence between uh, respected laws into policy if you could maybe get give me some insight on that thanks no i think it's should I answer? <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. <laughs> Someone says commodification, and I'm like, that's my people. Um, no, it's, it's a really excellent question. And while I'm not particularly an expert on the region that you're speaking of, that particular kind of dynamic is written all through, uh, up and through a lot of the questions that we have regarding questions of land tenure, right? It's the external imposition of particular ways of being and understanding, knowing and using land and then also um, particular kinds of um, commodified also um, but particular kinds of uh, parcels of land that people are expected to be able to regularize the use of, uh, of private land so that that very much is the case in a lot of contexts it's it's challenging uh, from a Somali context to speak to that di uh, traditional dynamic because there was pre-civil war um, uh, private ownership of land. Okay, then there was socialist uh, government, so it becomes very complicated how you actually describe it. The challenge um, in this context, in the context of Somalia is actually about, in the context of Mogadishu specifically, is about how we conceptualize different claims to ownership of land in Mogadishu, right? So there is this kind of uh, what you might consider a collective claim to land that almost exists in the aftermath of the civil war, a kind of autochthonous claim to land that emerges in the aftermath of uh, large-scale clan conflict, right? And so the question becomes, if that's how the rest of the country is parceled out and that's how people understand what the post-civil war context is going to be, why shouldn't that or why couldn't that be a register that people use to understand their relationships of belonging to Mogadishu, right? And so there was large-scale demographic uh, displacement during the course of the civil war, outflux as well as influx, and this transformed people's relationship to the city overall. What also happened, though, is that as people went into the diaspora and as people went to Sweden and London and all of these other places, they also brought with them um, documents that 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 existed and there's a kind of archival politics of war that isn't often discussed right there's the what people brought with them was land uh tax bills and title deeds and other forms of 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 proof witnessing right that demonstrated their attachment to particular parcels of land but also to the city of mogadishu as a whole 
And so when the city itself in around 2011, 2012 began to have a, a context of more increasing stability, a lot of diaspora started to return. A huge generation of diaspora have started to return. And with them have come these claims, right? These claims that predate uh, the Civil War. This was my home. This was my family's home. Um, and then the question becomes you and whose army, right? Which of those claims do we prioritize? And this, this is a really important post-conflict justice question. This is not just about um, a particular plot of land, but this is about the ability to be able to determine what the future of the city is, what civic participation looks like, what citizenship means in an urban space, who gets to determine what this future of the city is, right? And so it's mediated through brick and mortar. It's, it comes out through a claim to a particular plot of land and home, but there's different kinds of registers, because if I can look at you and say, okay, um, actually what's happened is the displacement that matters is the colonial displacement. Well, the displacement that matters is the displacement that existed before the paste paper and the, and the writing and the registration and the, and the archive. But your argument is that you have a piece of paper and you have a very recent claim. Which of those do we prioritize? So these become really important questions of historical memory, as well as political violence, as well as reconciliation, as well as econ economics, because this, there's an actual increasing skyrocketing attachment of value to a particular plot of land, right? And so while it doesn't mark as easily onto the, onto the almost traditional binary that we have, which is the uh, traditional African customary land ownership system and then externally imposed Western land practices and then that that transition there are it rhymes as opposed to being identical does that make sense what's important is to have in the context of Mokdisho and a conversation that overlays different kinds of claims and claims making in the context of land and while particular cases of land plots may be zero-sum the wider issue does not necessarily have to be. And that, that would be my departure point for thinking uh, about that. Thanks. I'll now take a question from online. Um, so that's a question for Min. Um, women's rights organizations in Myanmar have long been neglected by many donors. Do you think that this has changed in any way because of the activism and courage they have shown since the coup? Um, first of all, um, I think it should be best answer for, 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 for a woman, but I can say, but I always like to say to be, I don't represent anyone in Myanmar. I'm just saying on behalf of myself. So in any way, any form that I'm not speaking over uh, a crowd of women, my fellow feminist sisters. Um, so uh, the, um, the question is like, is it changed after over the years, right? Because of the activism? Mm -hmm. um, I have to say it changed and improved a lot, especially I worked in, um, development sectors and I have my friends from my NGOs and activists so but the thing is like um, although it had changed but they're still facing difficulties especially from the uh, the military you know to control the countries and who basically are known for sexual violence and abuses that's why I was really really angry why like I said about well, UNFPA had to us in Napido showing off on Twitter you know it's, this is like it's unacceptable right it's more than you know, like ignorant so yes things have changed but uh, since we are the uh, the coup in 2021 uh, I will say that I would divide it to two, uh, two stages. 
things have changed, and especially more in um, awareness raising. For example, like there, like um, activist civil rights womanized organization are providing trainings or, or like awareness raising online through uh, uh, through channels. So the the knowledge sharing is it's, it's now it's changing, but the, the practicality of doing work things inside Myanmar is still ongoing struggle because of the coup. I mean, which is it's already been already been struggling problem. So if I answer that, yes. But again, I don't represent any. Thank you. Great points, Min. And also as well, uh, when we talk about overcoming inertia, a lot of the most powerful women-led movements in Myanmar after the coup and before the coup were actually not women rights organizations. They were not CSOs, they were not NGOs. They were like grassroots networks, people just coming together and getting out there on the streets leading protests across the entire country and so when we talk about you know the international aid system humanitarian system and overcoming inertia that filters down to many different levels of this prioritization to fund ngos to fund certain modalities of work when really some of the most profound work is outside the formal sector and how can aid actors donors ngos and UN agencies support these kind of grassroots movements in different ways is really really critical so we have another question over here Uh, so I actually have three questions, but I'll be really quick. <laughs> the first question is for uh, Min. So you said that uh, you were a human rights analyst and also as, a, as an SRH advocate. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, the rape or like sexual assault is the, one of the weapons that the military uses in conflict areas. So as a human rights analyst, are there like any other atrocities that they commit that people do not talk about a lot? I mean, it's all forms of like a, um, atrocities, right? But but the thing is that it's a uh, it's a rape as a weapon of war. It's not you know like it's all armed forces. It's not only mi it's only military. You know, it, you can see in rebel forces. It's around the world. You can see in different insurgent groups, militias. So I was just saying that in in uh, especially on that uh, the topic because it was asked by by women crowd. So of course there are also many many forms. You know, like I mean different forms. Like for example, have you seen uh, the yesterday of like a, you know, like a burning alive, for example, captivating? You know there are a lot of atrocities. You know it's just like uh, a different way of forms. Yeah, I will answer that. The other two is for the other two is for uh, the first one is the one you said, like, uh, you will need uh, more than humanitarian aid, like you need political, political um, assistance, like policy aid as well. Uh, as far as I understood, Syria political situation is also very complex in a way that it has international state and ethnic actors like uh, Assad government, uh, Syria regime and uh, Russia and Iraq supporting them and Western, uh, US and Western allies supporting the rebellious group as well. And also there are like Gulf um, states as well. So there, it is like very complicated. And when you say like these two, like Russia and the US, they are like supporting two different groups. Uh, uh, both of them are at the uh, UN Security Council. Like it is like very like, <laughs> you know, like it is very complicated. So when you say like you will need more than uh, humanitarian aid and political interventions, then what kinds of um, interventions or what kind of assistance that are you referring to? Because I'm from Myanmar, by the way, and I'm doing cross-sectional study of Syria and Myanmar. So like, I'm just wondering, like, because we're also complicated like that. So, uh, what kind of interventions are you hoping to get that? And the, the second one is, thank you for sharing the equity situation. So the second one is that uh, you mentioned a lot about 
about the earthquake and humanitarian assistance needed there. Like, what what about the other parts of Syria where the Syria regime, like Assad government, is ruling? I'm sure there is still a lot of humanitarian aid and like conditions also really really bad. What what about the condition there? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yes, the situation here is very, very complicated. But to be honest, I think every conflict, every conflict is that complicated. It's not unique uh, to, to Syria. I mean, we, we, we live in a world. I think every conflict is, 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 has international projections and, and, and different powers. So it's not just unique to Syria. I know that everyone loves to think that our, uh, my struggle is unique, but I think this. Um, okay, so what I mean, what I mean by uh, by the political process. So there is a there is a, a UN political process, a UN peace process that was initiated in 2014. Um, uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Geneva process. Uh, so we have a political process in place uh, that actually um, um, uh, was. It lasted for only two years. Right, but then because of the, to be honest, because of the Western allies' withdrawal from Syria, there has been an asymmetrical power relations within that political process, and it was somehow handed over to Russia. Mm. So Russia has the upper hand on the political process for quite some time, and that of course led to a stalemate situation. So in 2019, um, because of the Syrian civil society. Uh, 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 um, uh, lobbying efforts, I'd say, the political process was re-energized and reconstructed. So it's not just only the opposition, the, the traditional opposition groups versus the Syrian regime, the civil society, the Syrian civil society said, stop with this track two, track one, you know, uh, nonsense. Um, because because we are we, we are on the from the ground you're on the ground so if you want a, an actual political process we need to be on the table we need to be sitting on the table because the opposition doesn't represent us and of course the regime doesn't represent us as well uh, and actually that's led to the creation of something called the syrian constitution committee in 2019 which actually is like three blocks so you have the syrian regime block the, the traditional opposition block and the civil society blocks the civil society became an actual negotiators Right, sitting at the table, setting the agenda and all of this. However, at the same time, because of the lack of international interest in Syria, um, the same problems of these asymmetrical power relations remained in the Constitutional Committee. And it also failed to produce any tangible outcomes. Um, I, will I can give you lots of examples because, because I'm part of that committee. Um, and we met around eight times in, in Geneva. And uh, you could see, for instance, um, when we're meeting in, in, in a negotiation room, outside there will be the international delegations. You will see hundreds of Russian diplomats and maybe like two or three other Western diplomats, right? And um, so, so the regime doesn't really feel any kind of pressure, political pressure to make any meaningful concessions. So when we say that we need a political process, it means that we need some of the our allies, the Western allies, to actually invest or to, to create more pressure and more heat on the regime. How can we do that? There are many ways to do this. One of them is a better utilization of sanctions. So as you know, there are a lot of sanctions in Syria, uh, individual sanctions and, san and sectoral sanctions as well. And we, I, believe, I certainly believe that the sanctions are 
in Syria, they don't really work uh, because they've been implemented now for 10 years and they haven't, they haven't actually made any, any real difference. And I believe because they were, the sanctions were imposed for the sake, for the sake of sanctions. Mm. And we've been telling some of the Western allies that, look, sanctions should be a vehicle to create, to open up bargaining spaces, right? It should be utilized in order to get some concessions from the regime, but that never happened. Uh, uh, so that we need better utilization of sanctions. Um, also, there is, I would, here I have to, to, to do like a shout out for the civil society as well, when it comes to the accountability efforts outside of Syria. So uh, 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 they've been now a, a proposal to create a special tribunal or exceptional tribunal for the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, there have been an, an enormous efforts actually uh, uh, for uh, at the international uh, uh, judicial system. So the ICJ, the International Court of, of Justice, five months ago uh, ruled. Uh, 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 so there was there was a case a case brought by Canada and Netherlands against the Syrian regime. Uh, for, for, for torture and, and uh, systematic torture, and the ICJ actually ruled against the Syrian regime uh, provisional measures. Uh, there are also some trials that are happening in Germany about uh, uh, Syrian intelligence officers who were uh, involved in torturing and systematic torture and rape and sexual violence inside of Syria because Germany has a universal jurisdiction within their constitution, so they're allowed to prosecute uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity that happen outside of Germany as well. So we, we use that also for, for our advantage and other countries might, might, might follow suit. So for instance, last month, a, a French court issued an arrest warrant against Bashar al-Assad for the use of chemical weapons um, against civilians. And these all are civil society efforts. This is all the diaspora efforts outside of Syria. So we want to increase this kind of legal pressure and political pressure in order to reactivate the political process um, in a way that the regime could actually make meaningful concessions and to make this process move forward. Um, as for the second question about the situation in the regime-held areas, it's really, really bad. It's very, very bad. Um, my parents, my parents still live there, or some of my family still still live there. Um, despite my harsh criticism over the UN on the UN, and um, I think the UN largely failed in Syria specifically in northern Syria. However, when it comes to the regime areas, I think the UN is, a, is, is the most essential lifeline for Syrians in, in the regime-held areas. And we need, that's why we always say, look, we, don't, we want to keep supporting the UN mechanisms throughout in, in regime-held areas, but we also need more, pre we, we need regulations for NGOs and INGOs to be able to work there, which is now it's nearly impossible Right. So for, I'll give you an example. There is an, a big organization called the Syrian American Medical Society, SAMS. They're a huge medical organization working only in northern Syria. Um, and they have been they, they wanted to provide support for other Syrians in, in regime held areas, but they're not allowed by the Syrian regime because they will be prosecuted. They will be uh, jailed and other organizations. The way when there was a fire uh, a huge forest fires in regime held areas, the white helmets in northwest Syria said, please give us permission to go and help and rescue people in regime held areas, but the regime refused to do any, any sort of that. So we need better re regulations. We don't have any regulations actually in Syria for, for civil society. Civil society is a, is a taboo. Is a, you cannot say civil society in regime held areas. 
Um, uh, so we need better regulations, better laws. We need more presence of NGOs and INGOs in regime-held areas. And of course, we need uh, the UN to continue supporting people there, but in, in a more accountable manner. So one last example about the UN there. A couple of months ago, there's a Syrian organization, a brilliant Syrian organization called Syria Legal Development Program. They, they, they publish a report called A Few Bad Apples, the Procurement Policies of the UN in Syria. Uh, and they, they basically look at the procurement policy that the UN is doing in Syria. And they found out that the UN is, is I'm not exaggerating, the UN is, pay, is paying millions of dollars to war criminals. So people are on sanctioned lists by the US, by the UK, by the EU for being war criminals. They're receiving a lot of money from procurement contracts with the UN. One of these people who received over a million dollars from the UN, he was personally uh, involved in, 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 in something called the Tadamon massacre, which is a massacre that happened in Damascus against uh, uh, Syrian Palestinians who were shot on the street and they were buried in mass grave. And this guy, who appeared in videos in this massacre, he received a lot of money from the UN because he has, I think, like a supplier company or something. So we need the UN to continue supporting Syrians in regime areas, but in a more accountable way, in human rights, respecting human rights. And of course, we shouldn't say that, but don't give money to human rights abusers and war, crime, or war criminals. This should be like, we should go without saying, but it seems in the Syrian context, we have to say it. Yeah. Um, the last point I would like to add as well. So for example, it's not only the UN though, it's like basically you know, diplomats. For example, in Myanmar in 2014, uh, 2012, 2014, when the first EU ambassador went into Myanmar, he basically rented a house of the ex-generals. You know? When people are calling out, including me and my friends, they just rent out. They recently moved out until when the coup happened two years ago. The three EU ambassadors actually lived there. And at one point, one of the ambassadors, old one, uh, was even mentioning that it felt really good to, 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 to actually to live like this. I mean, not, of course, official, but out of context, yeah, mm -hmm. in a social event. That's one thing. And also, um, so that's now a UN again. I remember back in uh, early days of 2000, I was still back in, in Myanmar at the time, um, UN ODC actually uh, worked together with the uh, Myanmar Police Drug Force, who was supposed to basically, uh, I mean, just work together. But instead of that, uh, I don't know what happened. It's just like more like the typical project money I've used. But uh, the police uh, chief force at the time became richer and richer, even uh, send kids to uh, international schools, you know. So that's, uh, it's like I said, like you said, it's without going saying they don't give money funded to the criminals and all the, the killers, but uh, it's that's part of the system. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Question online first. Uh, so this is a question for all of the panel. Um, so how can humanitarian actors navigate their role within what could be termed as non-state entities framework during crises, such as in northern Syria, in Somaliland, and in the on the border population in Myanmar? Can you say yeah. that again? Yes. So how can humanitarian actors navigate their role within the non-state uh, entities in northern Syria, Somaliland, and on the border in Myanmar? Okay, who wants to <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in the context of uh, Somaliland in particular, I think there have been established channels and relationships for uh, international actors to work within the context of Somaliland. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, humanitarian actors who go there often walk the streets in Hargis and have no, no challenges whatsoever in that. Um, so I think if we're talking about the questions of 
I think the real issue is the areas that are hard to reach, um, and these are areas that are governed by al-Shabaab in the south, um, that the state itself doesn't have access to, and that particularly when it comes to questions of uh, human, uh, fragile humanitarian aid access um, becomes impossible, if not difficult. Um, and this is where I do this every time, but I'm going to embarrass Dustin because his, his research specifically looks at how uh, localization efforts specifically uh, in the context of Somalia rely on uh, local or, uh, organizations in contexts where aid cannot be uh, delivered effectively by INGOs and then term that localization, right? Uh, as opposed to conceptualizing it in contexts where access is available and, 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 and possible, um, what, it, it, it's the necessity of it almost comes under the basket of localization if that's a, a fair argument of your, of your work. Um, so I think that that would be the context where um, humanitarian humanitarian aid actors have have the highest challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you elaborate on northern Syria because I feel like there could be similar dynamics. Exactly, I would say very similar dynamics to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would add to that that's. Um, well, non-state actors is a very broad term. So if, if we're talking about non-state armed actors, um, and here I think I'm not a humanitarian. I'm not. I'm not a humanitarian worker. But I think sometimes it is inevitable to walk or to navigate or to walk through uh, all uh, um, with, with some of these actors. But in the Syrian case, we find over and over that um, working with local NGOs and local grassroots uh, uh, organizations. Uh, they're the ones who know how to navigate this kind of power relations and how to actually deliver the aid to the, to, to the people who need it. And there are many, many examples of this where um, big NGOs uh, uh, um, had problems navigating the power relations and how to reach s specific areas. And they ride on very grassroots uh, uh, groups uh, in order to do that. And they, they were successful. And may I say, most of these examples, most of these grassroots, I'm talking about are mainly women-led grassroots uh, initiatives that really um, are able to navigate this. So my, my opinion would be working on, at the grassroots level, uh, looking at the women-led grassroots uh, efforts or, or initiatives in, in, inside of Syria. They know how to navigate the, the, the and because they've been doing this for, for, for ages, mm -hmm. so they know how to navigate the power relations and the, 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 the hierarchy and, and the structures and the social structures and, and, and all of that. Uh, but also, may I say that, speaking of this, um, because you mentioned uh, also uh, the, the accumulation of knowledge mm. and how they came and then just mm -hmm. they knowledge and they leave. I, I believe, I don't know if this is relevant, but I believe also all of the NGOs and international NGOs working in Syria, they also need to, not just in Syria, in, 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 in a conflict, we need some sort of a decolonization of, of, of aid delivery. So I, I believe like one of the most um, recent, most effective social movement in the UK was the, the decolonization of curriculum mm -hmm. in, in most universities, which is a student-led mm -hmm. movement, right? And I think we need something similar when it comes to the to the to the to the international system and to INGOs, um, uh, in order to be able also to do an actual localization fund. So you mentioned that example and many many other examples. There are many terms which I believe are very colonial. For instance, like empowerment. Mm -hmm. uh, I hate that term. So it's like because it's like people don't have any agency, and we're just giving them power. Mm -hmm. 
which which very colonial, right? And um, or I, a capacity building. Uh, uh, of, of, I have um, I did an interview in Northern Syria once, and 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 one and uh, with an NGO worker, and he said they have been doing capacity building for us for 12 years. Should we graduate by now? I mean, saying, like, just stop with this. I mean, yeah, so I think, yeah, this is also like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And also the term educating. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I avoid using that term, especially to talk to It's like educating, like what you, you're not educated, you're barbarian, you're barbarian, you know, that's why you're educated. Uh, so uh, regarding, uh, I mean, the, um, the border, Myanmar border, um, I would just like to repeat what I said before. So basically, uh, I mean, supporting localization, working together with grassroots level groups, and uh, you can even work with um, like civil society or, or INGO. I mean, like uh, for example, like a development committee group uh, work together with uh, uh, armed, for example, armed forces like Karenta in KNU. KNU can deliver a lot of things, stuff also in other things as well. You don't have to work with ethnic armed forces in general. You can work with other civil society organizations. You don't have to go through the you know, military set up, for example. And um, I'm also not saying that uh, in Thailand, for example, right, a lot of these things, like uh, Mazen said, it was uh, interesting because one of the, the incidents happens uh, in Korean, Korean IDPs in 2022, if I remember correctly. The, the aid and the, the things needed, like the, the materials and things were uh, arrived, uh, came from the, the local people in Massot and Burmese diaspora, arrived faster than the actual coming from the government, from, from, the, from the, the UN, you know, and INGO. Not only the UN, but also the big INGO as well. And uh, the last thing is basically include lifting this uh, colonial, I mean, sorry, uh, lifting colonial funding restrictions, right? Some of them still use this kind of thing. And also out of touch reporting mechanism. Like, why do you need a report for? Like, for example, you want to fund organization and uh, and you have to have, a, for example, registration. They are CSO. They, there's no time to register. It's in the middle of the, the crisis revolution. How can you register yourself or your organization? Plus, they are CSO, you know? It's so some of these, these restrictions from, from big INGO, not only the UN. You know, sometimes there are some UN-led small grant projects, which they just, you know, work together with, with they don't even ask, but also some INGOs as, as well. So instead of working together with INGOs, local CSOs, directly, rather than uh, giving the fund to these big INGOs, which they're divided, staff salary, high level, sitting in Mass or Chiang Mai, and then just renewed, renewed uh, to, to contribute later. So these things should be addressed and uh, decolonize the whole, um, the, I mean, aid process as well. Thank you very much. Cool. And I think that there's always these questions of how do you scale that? And I think Myanmar is really pioneering a lot of this of networks upon networks that are capable of absorbing and vast amounts of money and delivering it to the hardest to reach places. So it's not necessarily this question of possibility to scale, but overcoming inertia. Anyway, another question over here. Um, my question is for Min. Um, you say move away from the UN system. Uh, and while I share that point of view, some would say this is an extreme solution. Um, the UN and the Security Council were established because the world order changed at the time, but uh, and the permanent seats were given because of the importance of each country's role in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, since then, the composition has uh, disproportionately empowered the P5. Uh, so the question is, with this power distribution today, um, is it even possible to move away from the system? And uh, I mean, without being blocked. And what do you think would be the first step if it was to happen theoretically? 
Um, I mean, theoretically, so I'm not a policy analyst, so I'm not going to answer the theoretically. It's just that, yeah, I mean, if, if it's very much, very much possible, right? So that's a similar argument that UN INGO use the whole time. Like, in like, a, do you want to get blocked? Or do you want to be like, you know, just do things, right? Instead of like uh, trying to find ways of working on the situation, it, what it says is that do you want, uh, for like I said, right? UN always being prioritized humanitarian access than the actual things happen on the ground. So that's a similar, the same argument that, that, that being, we've been here for a long time. So that's why we are suggesting, requesting, pushing for them to work closely with the, uh, the local organizations, you know, because I don't think, especially with the, with the, like the, uh, the wall order today, it's very hard to change because right now the, the, the seat is, is there after because of the World War II, right? So that'll be my answer yeah, to the question. Yeah. Similar to this is how do you all see the current composition of the UN Security Council uh, permanent members <laughs> besides human maybe maybe Surer and Mazen. I think it's great. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any edits I would make at all actually. No, I mean I think obviously it's it's a it's a continual system of uh, intransigence, intransigence that are at the right at the beating heart of the Security Council, of course. Um, it's very uncomfortable that it is a number of formerly and contemporarily colonial powers that effectively get to govern what happens in the rest of the world. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not awesome. <laughs> yeah. I just want to, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, that's, and it's really difficult to it's a, I think it's a, it's a huge question and people could spend ages trying to answer how to reconstruct and, and, and the Security Council there's been proposals about like a, like a rotation of veto so, so I don't know I'm, I'm not an expert in this but I can say for certainty like in, in the Syrian context for instance the the humanitarian assistance through uh, uh, through the border which is called the cross-border aid they decided that this should be at the mercy of the Security Council. Um, so each year, Russia, which is the main ally for the Syrian regime, threatens to veto that, that uh, resolution. And the West say, okay, what do you want in return not to veto it? And the Russians just control um, the narrative and they, 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 they make it, uh, they introduce new language and, and all of that. And each, so we, the, the cross-border resolution started with four border crossings, right? And then they ended up with one border crossing. And then uh, now actually, they, and finally after 10 years of this, they finally veto it, said, okay, no more cross-border resolution. And for, for 12 years, Sears have been saying, this decision should not be made by the Security Council. This is a humanitarian decision that shouldn't be made by the Security Council. Uh, it's part of the UN mandate and charter, and it should be made by the General Assembly or uh, no uh, uh, um, authorization from the UN is needed actually for providing humanitarian assistance. So I believe there are certain aspects that should be kept out of the Security Council, mm -hmm. primarily providing humanitarian assistance to affected population or to popular need. This shouldn't be a political discussion or, or no one should veto a resolution saying that the UN should provide assistance or, or aid uh, to, to an affected population. So maybe this is something that needs to change that some sort of like a humanitarian nature decisions should not be made by Security Council, should be made by General Assembly when, when, when there's some sort of an 
<laughs> at least there's no veto power or, or, or something. And then, yeah. So maybe that's that, that's the start of, of reimagining this this whole uh, this functional system. I think these conversations are rising again now when it came to Gaza and calling yes. for a ceasefire yes. and calling for humanitarian aid. So exactly. definitely needs a considering again. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Should we take another question from the? Thank you. Uh, thank you for the for the talk. It was very interesting. And I have two questions. I don't know. You can answer whatever. And they're general. The first one is we were talking about the demilitarization and militarization of humanitarian aid, but and obviously theoretically we are all against putting aid uh, to the military. But for example, in Sierra Leone after the 1997 coup, the fact that um, they tried to defund the, the army actually brought to another coup because the army was made of people still who, who weren't given enough maybe um, recognition we could say or and they were angry at that and then they it was on not obviously not the only reason but there was one of the reasons why they started to ask for more even after that while in 2002 they tried to put more effort into recognizing them they gave them more funds they gave them more um more money to every to even more like every one of them but mostly the senior and that actually helped to stabilize this, their situation for a bit so what is the tension between giving money to the army and saying okay we recognize you maybe we we need to give you something and saying okay no we we can give money to you while there are other priorities in the country and what do you think about this and another uh, question is about AAP because you mentioned AAP and it's I think it's very relevant and I wanted to see, to ask how effectively how effectively can you do that and what is the um, tension between care and control because humanitarian agencies and aid is based on gathering data that is obviously even after like uh, crisis like earthquakes are very helpful to inform policies but at the same time we're like these agencies have the data of all these people's individuals and they could actually be used in potentially in many different ways and at the same time we are patronizing what we think that is they, they should do and what we think like we think that we can have this data without maybe sometimes their permission and I don't know thank you I would answer the AAP, the Accountability Affected Population. I think it is feasible and it's doable. And I think we have a um, we have a good start in this. So two years ago, because of the, the Russia's constant threat of the cross-border aid through the UN, so a lot of donor countries, they were thinking about, okay, when that time comes, when Russia finally vetoes any sort of humanitarian assistance to northern Syria, we need to find alternatives, right, to, 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 to deliver aid, whether through the UN or outside of the UN. So two, two years ago, um, there was something, it was actually pioneered by FCDO uh, and the EU and other major donors called the, the AFNS, the, um, aid uh, the aid fund for northern syria which is basically a mechanism that was established by fcdo and other donors eu mm -hmm. outside of the un 
cluster system or the UN mechanism um, in order to continue providing aid uh, to northern Syria without the consent of the government or the Security Council, which was a very brave move, to be honest. And it was also it came from because of years of, of lobbying of civil society and advocacy about this. What they did, of course, at the beginning, there was some problems with it, but then because of the accountability of affected populations, also it's kind of a demand of Syrians. So they created a steering committee and they invited Syrian actors, Syrian NGOs to be part of that committee in order to take decisions about, about the money that's been transferred through this mechanism. And over the years, the steering committee uh, started to be more representative of, of more local NGOs in northern Syria. Um, and, 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 and because they're walking on the ground and most of them, they're, uh, it's their area as well. So they've been, I think, doing a great job in, in kind of reflecting or voicing the, the concerns of their local communities to this, to this platform. So this is a good start and it's applicable. And it's feasible if there was a willingness uh, to do so. Of course, the problem is that it's, this platform it doesn't have the same funding as, as, as the funding that goes through UN, UN mechanisms and UN clusters. But I think it's a good start. And I think it could, should be replicated in, in, in other, in other contexts. And here, in a way, you're actually involving the, the, the affected population in the decision making. It's not perfect, but they're a gradual increase step by step. I think it's, it's, it's important. But again, but the second is not the most important thing. It's like the, of course, the participation decision making is important. But also, and that's something a civil society also pushing for, is human rights is is is, is to, to to a human rights based approach to humanitarian assistance. Exactly what you said that respecting human rights and dignity of the affected population, respecting the privacy, not sharing their data uh, with any third party, and on all of that because it happened in Syria actually. Um, there was a UN created something called the deconflection mechanism, which actually they ask medical organizations to share coordinates of hospitals not to be bombed. And then a lot of these hospitals were actually bombed directly by Russian warplanes. So MSF issued a very brave statement saying we will not share any coordinates with the UN about any hospitals in Syria anymore. Um, so there was a breach, a, a, a huge breach of data. Uh, that's actually led to the destruction of many hospitals. But here, I think when they're doing a better job in trying to preserve some of these data, but again, it's a still a very small scale pilot project, but I think it has potential uh, to actually become an alternative to the UN uh, cluster system, which I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't, we should continue funding the UN, of course, and the UN cluster system. But because of the politicization, I, I, I was discussed, this mechanism gives us more flexibility in terms of funding and reaching areas and all that. Yeah. Surya, maybe you could talk briefly about this military funding aspect, because there's a lot of uh, the government yeah. uh, liberation of a lot of territory yeah. in Somalia, and what does that mean for the international aid system as well, yeah. and yeah. governance within Somalia? So recently, over the past few years, um, there have been quite a few gains uh, on the part of um, community armed groups, but also the state uh, support. 
uh, for the liberation of territory from al-Shabaab. And so then there's a large question about what it means to A, maintain that territory, and B, actually integrate it into um, the existing federal government system. Uh, these are areas that, for the large part, have escaped um, political um, affect or reach from the central government for going on several decades, a decade, I, I suppose, um, and integrated not just politically, but also socially very deeply into um, the al-Shabaab system. So the question then becomes, what does uh, the liberation of these territories by the state, the liberation of these territories by local communities actually mean for uh, prospects for peace and prospects for stability going forward? Um, there, it, it's anyone's question. Um, this is a very fluid uh, situation going forward, but one of the really important um, critiques um, is about uh, deprioritizing uh, the, pri the priority of liberation of particular lands um, does not necessarily mean that um, uh, the, the funding or the infrastructure that is necessary in order to be able to support those incumbent populations afterwards um, is necessarily readily available. Um, and so, yeah, I think there there comes a question where um, wh how uh, in, in a context of rapidly changing and fluid um, uh, political allegiance, but also infrastructure and community cohesion, um, the question becomes how, how quickly can we mobilize the resources in order to be able to uh, serve these populations, but also to create infrastructure which allows them to not necessarily have, uh, not necessarily feel that the the, that it was better in the past, really, to be honest. Um, and so that, that's the question that, that faces um, quite, quite a few of the uh, future liberated territories. And it's honestly a very um, open question as to where, where it goes next. Thanks for that. I, I think we're getting close to the deadline because we have a strict uh, eight o'clock exit. But it maybe be lovely to have some concluding thoughts from, from all the panelists, maybe 30 seconds, key messages, particularly around this theme around overcoming inertia. I know it's been a, somewhat of a tour de force across many different topics and many different contexts, but it would be lovely to hear a few um, final words from, from each of you. Uh, Min, if you would like, kick it off. Um, so I would just like to uh, um, answer a little bit, and also that's also last comment of your question as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's not like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like, uh, like, you recognize them and then you know they give the recognize and give them access or die because the 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 militaries in general they're killing people every single day mm -hmm. so it is that uh yeah so it's totally understandable that but it's not like we are not arguing uh, advocating for not to engage with them because what regardless of all you say especially the un the governmental they will engage with them but what we are saying is that uh you should engage more with also with the local organization because right now at the stage that what happened was that the local international organization uh look like Mazen mentioned earlier like local uh, cso as these people will come and ask money you know instead of proper like them and so what they do is they give money and there's all this this struggle the interaction between the local cso and then ingo and also with the un as well and also the trainings provided is that not the actual like other trainings it's just the same kind of capacity building training because they have a project to go for the next five years you know like the eu development project in in cool myanmar for economic development what kind of economic de development do you are you talking about you know for example something like that so i'm not saying that it's do or die but just saying that it should engage more so that that would be my uh thank you very much thanks um 
I think I've learned as much uh, from this panel as, as I can see um, everybody else has. So I think one of the questions around uh, inertia that I started off with was this question of uh, protractedness. Um, but we can see that the inertia doesn't just exist in the context of the crisis itself. It also exists sometimes in the response to that crisis. I think what's being offered by quite a few of the, the panelists here are ways of thinking about reorganizing reconceptualizing really entrenched hierarchical um, power relations within our international system so that we can better meet the needs of very disaffected communities. Um, and I think there, there, there are a million possibilities that I think each one um, has spoken to about what that looks like, but thematically what's common is uh, an analysis of the ways that the contemporary aid, humanitarian, and developmental systems have failed um, particular kinds of communities, communities in contexts where um, crisis is continual, compounded, and ongoing, um, but also a need to understand um, uh, less hierarchical, if not unhierarchical, means of negotiating uh, economic resources, negotiating access, negotiating knowledge, and then also translating that into even our highest um, international systems. Um, this is not something that's going to happen likely in the, in the course of a, of a year or, or a decade. This will be an ongoing project, I think, from, from the activist, academic, and um, intervention fields. Um, but it's, it's great to see that there's so much cohes cohesion. And I think communities and locations of solidarity from within these silos will help us to be able to achieve these at a at, at global scale. So that would be my suggestion. <laughs> um, I think that's a perfect suggestion. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to follow. I, I totally agree with, with my fellow panelists about everything they said. I just want to add something very, very quick, maybe just um, um, with regard also to, to, to localization, all of this. I, I, I genuinely believe that all of the meaningful changes, social changes, political changes that happen in the world happen from below, uh, uh, from, 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 from bottom up. Um, and I believe meaningful changes in the international aid system should also happen from below, should also happen from the bottom up. And I think local NGOs and local CSOs are trying their best to change that, but I think they cannot do it by themselves. I think also INGOs uh, uh, should also be part, part of that movement, part of that change. And in order for, again, for, to, be, to, be, to be accountable to the, to the local population and for the local population to be part of the decision-making uh, power. This, this is um, this answer. Thank you. Should I? Okay. I think I, um, there was a theme of localization that emerged from all the panelists, but I think to keep engaging with that is to retain credibility with the local um, actors mm -hmm. and to maintain this engagement to give them resources to conduct their own local diplomacy and to carry out their own um, development. Um, and because, you know, as we saw in Syria, as we saw in Gaza, the spotlight will return on these neglected crises through one way or another. So when, when the spotlight returns, you already have the established networks with the local actors. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, I don't have much to add. It's been excellent. Uh, the panelists have been fantastic. So maybe just a round of applause for us. Um, and just, just touching on what is some of what has been said around localization and action, overcoming inertia. Like, yes, a lot of this is bottom up grassroots. That's important. But a lot of INGOs, UN agencies, donors also have the opportunity to 
support these processes and accelerate them and also get out of the way often is, is part of it as well. So really encourage action across all different levels. Um, just a final wrap up that, yeah, we're a humanitarian policy group and uh, we welcome ongoing discussions and engagement. We have social media, ODI underscore HPG. Uh, so please, other way around, HPG <laughs> underscore ODI. You can tell I don't have a great deal of social media myself, uh, but you should definitely get involved in that. We have a newsletter, which is also uh, super interesting. We publish regularly. We're doing a lot of uh, different analysis across different contexts, different themes. So we welcome your engagement and collaborations as well, because we realize you know it's a big ship that we're all trying to turn in different ways. So whether you're academia, activists, donors, we really welcome kind of you know, united push to to turn things in a better direction. But yeah, thank you all for attending and look forward to further discussions. Feedback forum surveys, if you can fill those, please. And for online, we've just posted a link in the chat. If you can fill those, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Thank you.